You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we welcome Gillian Corcoran, manager of the Spiritual Care Department at Christus St. Vincent. Gillian, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. I'm delighted to be here. It's great having you here. So let's start. Can you tell me about the Spiritual Care Department at Christus? What kind of services does the Spiritual Care Department in particular offer? Mm -hmm. We have a wonderful and eclectic Spiritual Care Department. Um, We are part of Catholic Healthcare, and Catholic Healthcare really supports uh, the whole person in healing body, mind, and spirit. So having a spiritual care department is very significant. And our department um, includes a Catholic priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a large population of Catholics here in Santa Fe, and at least 50% of our patients on any given day are Catholic. Wow. Uh, and then we also have a Greek Orthodox chaplain, Jewish, we have a couple of Buddhists, and a unity minister. And so we have quite a range. And even with that, knowing that as chaplains, we serve non-denominationally and are trained to do that. Right. So mm-hmm. um, and why is spiritual care so important for patients? I mean, we normally think about when you go to hospital, we think about the the actual physical healing, the medicine itself. So what does the spiritual care department add for patients? Well, when people are in the hospital, they're often in a very vulnerable state and fears and lots of thoughts arise. They're lying in bed. There's not a lot they can do. And so all kinds of things come up. So I think the essence of what we do is provide emotional and spiritual support to people. And I will add that we do this not just for the patients, but for their families who are also going through a lot of stress and also our staff. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, if you like, um, how we seek to care for our staff. We, we offer a, a wide range of services. You know, a lot of the time people put chaplains, as many other people, in a box. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you know, they go and pray with people or they're there at the end of life. And those are two very significant parts of what we do. Right. Um, and so, but prayer and prayer is very significant. Um, we pray with people who often are in a state where they can't voice the prayers themselves or they're feeling uh, alienated from God, uh, wondering what, why they're in the hospital, what's happening, why is this happening to me? Mm. And so many times we can be that voice of prayer for them. And it's amazing to me the number of times I pray with people and the tears just flow down their cheeks because that connection is made with something that is holy, that is beyond them, and that they can Mm. feel the love and compassion through a prayer. Uh, We also um, tend to patients by reading scripture um, from all different sources, from the Hebrew scripture, not as much because usually you are there, right. but um, the New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, we, we have a whole range of resources for our patients and, and we'll find whatever we don't have uh, in a moment. Thank goodness for Google. Right. Um, 
we uh, another thing that is important about what we do is is connecting with the clergy in the community. We ask patients, uh, do you belong to a faith community? Would you like your minister to know that you're in the hospital? Mm-hmm. Do you have support from that community? And, and if any those are in the affirmative, we will contact their clergy person. So we work very much in partnership with the local clergy, and that's an important relationship for us. We can't do it all ourselves. And I often refer to um, the, the people at the hospital as my large transitory congregation (laughs) (laughs) because we see people for a short time in a time of crisis Mm. and and yet they belong to other places. And so how do we support them while they're here and also sometimes even remind them of the significance of those connections with their larger community and the support that's there for them? It's interesting because sometimes... I'll hear of people having been in hospital weeks before and not known. And that's because they, you know, when they were asked, do you want Rabbi Neil to know? They'll say, no, it's okay. Um, But actually, it's a very important extra element of of caring and healing, isn't it? It's that sense of connection, because as you said, you can be very isolated, feel very isolated in hospital um, with staff who you don't necessarily know who are there to take care of you. But actually having community there present can be extremely helpful, can't it? Exactly, yes. Yeah, and we welcome it every time we see you or another clergy member. We're like, yes, you know, it's like fist pump time, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm interested when you say praying on behalf of other people and, Mm -hmm. and, and with other people, that must be quite challenging for you in particular, I guess, because different people approach prayer and approach God very differently. So do you normally have a conversation with them beforehand about you know, if you believe in God, who is God for you? What kind of prayer do you want? Is there that kind of conversation? Yes, there is. Um, we very rarely go in and begin with prayer. Right. It's usually more toward the end of a visit. And one of the questions I'll often say to people, having figured out through our conversation that indeed there is a relationship or a belief in God, I'll say, well, you know, if God was standing here right now, what would you want to say? And and then I invite people, would they like to say their favorite prayer? And then I can also pray along with them. So it's sort of a combination of all those things. But, you know, part of the essence of chaplaincy mm. is really meeting people where they are, really seeking to understand their needs. And their needs are always first. You know, it's, right. it's what is happening with them and who they are that is most important. And I guess there's... Um, I can assume that there's often a perspective that people have if they see a clergy member walking around and they think, oh, no, they're here to kind of force their religion on me. But but it's actually totally the opposite way, isn't it, in the spiritual care department? It, that's a really important point. It's, it is absolutely the opposite. There There is no proselytizing, no preaching. It's really, again, that meeting people where they're at. And that can include, you know, uh, we've had Wicca patients, we've had pagan, you know, it doesn't matter what somebody says they are. The point is that they are a person in need who seeks a connection, who seeks care, compassion, and that's what we're there for. I guess I have it much easier than you do because I only get called when there's a Jewish patient. What do you do when there's, for example, a, a Wiccan patient? Um, because I don't know connections to a Wiccan community. Do you use their liturgy? Do they guide you or the chaplain? How does that work? 
Yeah, it's it is very much listening to them and being guided by them. And you know, authenticity and honesty is very important. So for me to say, you know, hey. I, I honor your tradition. I don't know that much about it. Why don't you share to me with me what is meaningful about this for you, and and also even what maybe help help you from that in this circumstance that we're in right now. And I, what about those who have no faith? Do they tend to still rely or or, or ask for assistance from the spiritual care department when they see that that's available? Is there a way to reach out to those people as well, the non-theists, I, I guess? Yeah. You know, we do seek to visit at least very briefly with all the patients in the hospital, the new admits coming in, and we have a sort of a priority of how we see patients. Um, and and people who of no faith, you know, we are human beings. And, and to me, living a, a healthy, thriving life uh, we're connected with our purpose, with a sense of value, uh, with what is meaningful in our life. And those right. are the things actually that we like to talk with people about and hear what's going on with them in those areas. So I think any time we can have that kind of conversation with people about what is it that is meaningful, what gives them purpose in life, that then, you know, begins helping to create that connection and that more positive thinking. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, another aspect of chaplaincy is that we can be very light. And, you know, offering a smile, a joke, you know, some sports story. Uh, I'm known as the dancing chaplain. You know, I'll sometimes just dance in a room, you know. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, you know. (laughs) So it's uh, there's also that side of ministering. It's like, how do we lift the hearts of people? How do we bring a little humor into mm. this often very serious situation? And I guess, again, the, the great challenge for you and the, the respect I have for your work is, is immense because you have that, that task of helping to lift people and yet also holding people, for example, at the end of life or holding people when they know their life is going to be profoundly different once they leave hospital, if they are lucky to leave hospital. Um, uh, and um, and that sense of being able to, to lift people, but also to hold people through what is often a very difficult transition, either a transition out or a transition of knowing they're not leaving, um, you know, in the most extreme circumstances. And, and so that that's quite a Quite, quite a huge range of, of support that you have to be able to give. It is, it is. And that uh, end-of-life decision-making support is a very significant part of what we do and just walking with people. And, you know, a lot of the time people hear news that is so shocking to them. Mm. And one of the important things to help people realize is that it takes time for that to sink in to what this really means. And so as chaplains, we are right there with with them and and walking with them in that journey. And and a lot of the time, uh, we are actually, I feel we're like translators. There's all the jargon and the words that the doctors say. And then it's like, what does this mean in your life? And how do you see that this is going to be different? And so we act a lot of the time checking that understanding and, and, and being translators of what's going on. That's fascinating because 
that's fascinating to me because what you're doing, I guess, is not just translating the jargon itself, but translating the meaning, the the being of of that new information. Um, I'd, I'd never considered it like that. I, I think that's quite extraordinary, actually. Exactly. I'm nodding my head a yes. lot here, <laughs> and I'm like, that doesn't go over the radio. <laughs> so tell me how um, the. Being a hospital chaplain is different from being a minister. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the different ways, I guess, for you, you know, seeing, seeing ministers coming in and, and seeing a hospital chaplain? What's the, what are the key differences for you? The key differences are that, you know, the ministers coming in, this is one of their congregations, so they can speak exactly to what is going on through the vocabulary and the beliefs of that particular faith. When we know the faith of somebody, as much as we know, we can connect with it on that way, but we are totally non-denominational. So that's really, you know, we all have our own faith, and it's very important because we need to be grounded in that to be able to do this work. And at the same time, when we enter the hospital, it's like we leave our denominational hats behind and we are, I often describe us like chameleons. Uh, it's like we meet people where they are, so we change color as we go right. along. I'm still a chameleon, but I can be many different colors in one day. Um, and then I think the other, you know, the other main thing is that it's, it's more, I know pastoral counseling is part of ministering, mm-hmm. but that's really more the emphasis of what we do. So we do a lot of listening. It's not so much the preaching, the, you know, the upholding the beliefs or the tenets. It's, it's listening to people on a very deep level to hear what is going on with them so that we can know where to meet them and how to provide the support that they need. I think those are the two main. And then the other main thing really is that transitory uh, quality. We see people for a very short time right. in a time of crisis. And uh, and so I know that I can be with a person for one, two days, sometimes extended cases. And so part of what we do, there's no fixing in chaplaincy. Right. It's being with the people in this situation, knowing that they're going to go out with the rest of their lives into the world, with their families, their communities. And so it's, you know, we have a snapshot of time with people. So that's very different. And, but it, and it's such important time, though, isn't it? It's such mm-hmm. memorable time. I guess the, my last question before we take a break is, is that I'm, I'm so impressed, I guess, and I, and I don't mean to patronize in any way if it sounds like I am, that the Catholic health care, which is quite specifically Catholic, is so open to such wide denominationalism and support of um, of so many different faith communities. And I, I just wonder if you could just quickly speak on that in terms of, uh, of what that means theologically or religiously. Mm-hmm. The, actually, what Catholic healthcare means is that we're actually guided by what are called the Catholic social teachings. And the most basic principle of those is to honor the dignity of every single person. And so all the other principles arise out of that, right. seeing with eyes of dignity. And, and so the, the principle that especially relies, relates to spiritual care emerging out of that is that of the holistic care of the person, that, that care of the mind, body, and spirit, and recognizing and honoring that people have wide and various faith traditions and that it's our job to support them in whatever that is, whatever their faith or cultural beliefs are. 
that's wonderful. Thank you. That's a great phrase. I, I really love that. So we're going to take a, a quick break. Um, you're listening to Soul Searching. Uh, my guest uh, this evening, Rabbi. Oh, sorry, I'm Rabbi Neil Amzis. <laughs> my guest this evening is Gillian Corcoran, um, who's the manager of the Spiritual Care Department at Christus Saint Vincent. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. And my guest this evening is Gillian Corcoran, who is manager of the spiritual care department at Christus St. Vincent. Now, moving away from the chaplaincy work itself, um, I was fascinated to read that you're a Reiki master and <laughs> specializing in emotional healing, utilizing the emotion code, emotion freedom technique, Bach, flower remedies, creative arts and labyrinths. I've never had a Reiki master on the show, and I don't know what those things are. So I'm wondering if you can share what, what that is. I would love to. Thank. I'm so glad you asked. So glad you Googled me. <laughs> um, you know, I'd just like to begin by saying, you know, the healing power of touch, of healthy touch, is something that I think we all innately know. Right. You know, we've all reached out and touched the arm of somebody, stroked the head of a child, whatever it is. So being a Reiki practitioner, I would say, is that we're kicking that up a notch. And I compare it to um, like a light bulb, like you can have a 40-watt light bulb mm-hmm. um, so I, or a, a 60 or a 120. So basically Reiki is um, a, a, an allowing of you, what we call universal life healing energy to flow through us. And I believe that everybody has this mm-hmm. and we can all connect to it. Just as a Reiki practitioner, I can allow that at a stronger wattage, as it were, like the light bulb to flow through me so that it's sort of a more powerful energy. And people often remark that they feel, can feel amazing heat from my hands when I, when I am I'm practicing Reiki with them. See, I, I, I know nothing about this. And um, one time one person gave me a Reiki massage and, and it was a massage mm-hmm. um, and, and I felt great afterwards. But, you know, I come from an astrophysics background, very much scientifically based. And I know there's little scientific evidence for Reiki working, but there's so much personal testimony from people who say, I don't care about the fact that there's no, there's no experiments that seem to show that it works because it worked for me. How, how does that how do you hold that together, I guess? Yeah, you know, I have had so many people share experiences with me of what it did um, in a positive way. You know, I'm, I, one time I was with a patient having a potassium infusion, which is very painful, mm. as, and she's grimacing and moving in pain. Within five minutes of my putting my hands on her, she'd calmed down, was lying still completely. She, you know, she was not feeling the pain. Mm. That's just, you know, one example uh, of many. And so, you know, only recently, I would say, has research been done into the power of prayer, even, for example. And yet now more and more research is coming out about it. And so I feel that uh, there can be research on it. And at this time, the anecdotal evidence is pretty strong. Yeah. I think, and what's interesting for me, I guess, is some things um, can be experimented on. Um, and some things, as you say, the, the anecdotal evidence is, is, is very strong. For me, I guess sometimes when we're talking about, for example, the power of prayer, as you mentioned in hospitals, you know, there were some experiments that said it, it made no difference to these people in terms of how they healed. 
But that's not necessarily always what it's about anyway, is it? You know, if we if we're in a hospital and we say, dear God, please heal this person. And then the person dies. You know, is it that that prayer didn't work? You know what? Because I guess ultimately, what's the purpose of prayer in hospital or, or if somebody asks or what's the purpose of Reiki massage? I'm not sure it's necessarily to get the person to be better, but to perhaps address where they are now. Would that be a fair I think that's fair. I think I think healing takes place on many levels. Uh, there is the physical part of it, and sometimes that can happen. But right. there's there is the emotional healing um, and also a spiritual healing that we don't necessarily see with these human eyes. Right. But I trust that it's taking place. Uh, I know when I think of prayer, for example. I know one of the, you know, prayers for us, I always think, right. you know, it's like it helps change us. And and one of the things I think prayer helps with is forgiveness. And what I've discovered in the work I've done, especially at the more emotional work, is that one of the biggest blocks to healing mm-hmm. is the lack of forgiveness and anger. And so if I can work with people and help them come to that place of forgiveness, often through prayer, right. Uh, it can be a huge help in healing. And is that very often, is that self-forgiveness or is that forgiveness of others? Where does that tend to focus? That's, I'm really glad you included self-forgiveness because I think that's huge. Um, and, I, and it's both. Uh, nearly everybody has somebody that they would like to forgive for something and also would like to be forgiven for by another and also then that forgiveness of self. I think it's huge. It's interesting when you say that the that prayer is for ourselves. In, in Hebrew, from my tradition, um, the Hebrew for prayer is lehit palel, which is a reflexive verb, which means to judge oneself. Um, prayer isn't dialing up to God and saying, dear God, this patient has this thing wrong, because if we believe, and I understand it's a big if, if we believe that God is all-knowing, God already knows that. And if we believe that God is all-powerful, then perhaps we also have to believe that God had a role in, in illness as well as in health. Um, and so for us, it's not necessarily a case of of asking for a magic fix, um, but rather saying, where am I now? What, am, what do I do with this illness? You know, what what is the fragility of my life what does that make of me, I guess? So um, for me, I, I find it very interesting to, to hear you mention that as well, because, because I think very often theologically we reduce God to magic tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get frustrated or people get frustrated at clergy or at, or at the faith tradition. Well, why didn't God heal this person? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then we have to give a, another similarly short answer. Well, the answer was no. You wanted it, but the answer was no. And, I, and I, I struggle with that kind of theology. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that kind of response to prayer within and, and out. Yeah, you know, for me, a lot of prayer is to do with um, surrender, that word surrender, and how do I reach a place of acceptance? And to me, those are some of the big struggles in my own life and that I see with other people with prayer. So, so you know, uh, we have inshallah, God willing, all those kinds of phrases. But in a way, am I really trusting God? Am I really trusting that I'm not in control of my life, that it really is in the 
heart, the love, the compassion of something greater than myself? And how do I let go in that situation? I think, I think for me, what I find interesting about this, when you say the surrender, because prayer can also be motivating, can't it? Mm-hmm. It can also be that which pushes us much more. Um, I, so in some sense, there's a sen- that sense of surrender. And I have, as you mentioned, I, I've been with members of community or I've been with individuals in hospital who've said, I've always been in control of my life, to which I would respond, when? When have you ever been in control of your life? And, mm-hmm. and I think there's something very powerful, actually, about this spiritual, um, spiritual dimension, which, which moves into when you say surrender, I guess for me, I, I have a slightly different perspective. The surrender, as you said, is to something larger and loving and so on. And I, I think that's, that's giving over. That's saying my responsibility for what happens in my life is in God's hands. And I wonder for me if there's just that first step of just at least stepping away and saying without any theological perspective, at least that awareness of we're never in control of our lives. Mm. You know, we are, you know, we could walk out in the street and then suddenly get hit by a vehicle or something like that. Mm. It, that's that chance element that we ride and we I think we have to hold on to control, though, don't we? And I, I think when you get into hospital, that's one of the difficulties because you're absolutely not in control. Right. The The realization of powerlessness is in the hospital sort of hits you smack in the face. And there's people coming in and out all the time and jabbing you and all kinds of things. And you have no control over it. So um, I, I think there's a bit of a difference between perhaps what I would call even that more motivational self-control, you know, how do we discipline and 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 really align ourselves with what we know is really healthy for us, the choices and the decisions we make. And at the same time, uh, doing those in good faith and in that context of overall, and I know at any moment this could be the end of my life. Right. I could walk out of this radio station and bam, that's it. You one, know. one hopes not. But. Right, exactly. Yeah. So I think I think as humans we we hope we do our best and and we pretend that we have control. But yeah. <laughs> but I think I think there's that sense of needing it, don't? Isn't there? There's a human need because if we didn't, we might just just stop and just say, well. I, I don't know what's going to happen to my life, so I'm just going to. What? Well, why go outside? So I guess we sometimes need to take control. Yeah, I suppose there are elements of our life we do have to take control of. It's like, yeah, how? When would I brush my teeth or take a shower? You know that we've got to. We have to live in this world, and that involves decisions and control taking. It's just the understanding that, in the larger sense. You know, we don't we none of us know when our last day is. Right. Yeah. And I, I think as we start to, to wrap up, I think there's something very powerful about about being able in the spiritual care department to, to hold people in those moments of being able to say it's OK. You can let go of that control. It's 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 actually quite real and humbling, I think. And I think there's something quite powerful Mm-hmm. Um, about that, um, and I wonder if you just have any final thoughts on on spiritual care and, and chaplaincy and that that sense of loss of control. I think, 
I think you're right, you know, and sometimes I would just like to add that sometimes ritual can really help with mm-hmm. that, especially at the, at, the, at the end of life and that letting go um, and providing, you know, basically what we do is we provide a sacred space for people for whatever it is that really needs to happen now happen. And if that's letting go, then hopefully we're aligned enough that we can perceive that and we'll facilitate that happening and and that's a lot of what we do by being fully present we can sense what needs to happen and and allow it and and even yeah maneuver a little bit so that it does happen because people often need a little nudge right. to know what to do next thank you it's it's so wonderful having you here so Thank you to Gillian Corcoran, who is the manager of the spiritual care department at Christus St. Vincent. Thank you for your your extraordinary work that you do, which I've been able to see and been lucky to be a part of. And also thank you, obviously, for joining me this evening for a fascinating discussion. So you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.